If you're a guest with us, again, a special welcome to you, as Emily said. We're so thankful that you chose to spend some of your, um, your morning here with us. We are in the second week of a journey through the Old Testament book of Esther. And uh, man, I am so excited to learn and grow with you all through this process. Um, as I shared with some of you last week, I'd never really read the book of Esther through until man, maybe a couple of, of, of months ago, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that. And so I love, I love, I love the privilege of just growing and learning together with all of you as we do this. I'm also a little bit nervous about this journey through the book of Esther because as you see even this morning, it is a book that surfaces some really heavy and real and raw and messy themes that we get to process and just ask the Lord to show himself to us in the midst of it um, all. So it's not necessarily a comfortable um, or a pretty book, but it's an incredible book in which I trust the Lord will speak to us as we journey uh, together. And um, man, as we walk through this book, we are going to see practices that are different from ours. We're going to see people in a culture that's different from ours. We are going to see things that are shocking to um, our system and to our norms and to our moral framework. And yet I trust that as we step in through the portal of time to the time of Esther into this messy and maybe shocking and very different um, Scenario that what we will find is the same God at work in the different, the same God at work in the mess, the God who is at work in the heavy, even now was at work in the heaviness, even back then. And um, as much as this story services differences and uncomfortable things, we accept that as a church, as an, an invitation, if you will. Um, Man, to be willing not to so quickly dismiss differences. Um, to, 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 to learn to maybe be slower at jumping to conclusions or imposing our priorities on a culture because it's so uncomfortable or it's so different from ours. Instead, we want to learn to be more curious and to ask more Questions, Because I don't know if you knew this, but curiosity is the place where possibility lives. Conclusions, that's where stories end. When I jump to a conclusion, I've reached the end. I've skipped the middle. I know how this thing wraps. And so there's no possibility of anything else happening. But curiosity, curiosity makes room for the possibility that maybe there's something I don't yet see. Maybe there's something I don't quite know. Maybe the story isn't quite wrapped. Now I'm talking to parents of teenagers. Maybe it's not yet finished. There's more coming out of this. And so we've said this and we're going to continue to say this. We want to be more curious and we want to ask more questions. Even when our instinct is to be dismissive or jump to conclusions, we want to be more curious. We want to ask more questions. And the question of curiosity that we believe will surface if we do that is the question of is it possible that God may still be working in the midst of this mess? Is it possible that God's still working in this different? Is it possible that God's still working in this shocking situation? When I jump to conclusions, I shut that possibility. But curiosity allows me to ask and maybe believe that it's possible God is still working even here. So if you missed last week, um, man, I'm going to give you a, a quick um, catch up of Esther chapter one. Again, the story is set in Susa, uh, modern day Iran, the capital city of the then Persian empire, the undisputed superpower of the day. And on the throne of Persia is a bad dude by the name of Xerxes, the wealthiest and most powerful man on the planet. Uh, when we join the story, Xerxes has a problem. And his problem is a real and present threat in the form of the Greek empire that's growing in power and coming 
after him and coming after his empire to claim status as the world superpower. And the only way to resolve that drama, he knows, is to go to war against the Greeks. And if he's going to go to war against the Greeks successfully, then he has to bolster. He's got to build up his army. And so in order to do that, he throws a six-month super party. And he invites from 127 of the countries under his power, he invites uh, the military and the national leaders to join him for six months. And during that time, he flaunts and he flashes and he flexes, just show and tell all of his wealth and all of the amenities of his kingdom in order to convince all of these people that you've picked the right side. And if you Pledge loyalty to me over and over again. This could be yours. And if you go to war for me against the Greeks, this is what you can expect your life to look like. Um, For 187 days, he does that. And at the end of the 187 days, he decides he wants to parade his pride and joy, who happens to be his wife, Queen Vashti. Because apparently she was stunning to look at. So he orders his wife, Queen Vashti, to present herself to him and men. This military convention of men to be paraded before them. Now, we don't know all of the reasons why Vashti made the decision that she did. So we won't jump to conclusions, will we? We'll be more curious and ask more questions. But in either case, at the end of the day... Vashti straight up shuts down her boo-boo, the king. Um, She defies her husband's order. Now, it was interesting. Last week, I asked my 16-year-old daughter um, over lunch, like, what did you think about Queen Vashti's decision to um, disregard and to dismiss her husband, the king's order for her to present herself um, to to him. <laughs> and um, man, my daughter said, it's none of your business what she said. That was a private conversation between me and my teenager. Come on. I mean, be more curious, ask more questions, but come on. Um, no, but really, I'm curious to know, what did you think as you continued to process the questions? What did you think about Queen Vashti's decision to defy her husband, because how weird would it be? Can you imagine this? Like if we showed up to church and we listened to a message and then didn't go away and think more about it and process it a little bit more, that would feel like a futile waste of time. So as you did that and process things, I'm curious to know where you landed on this whole um, Vashti thing. Um, what do you think Jesus would have told Vashti? To do Anyway, uh, continue to process that. In the meantime, it doesn't really matter how you feel about it or how I feel about it. The only thing that mattered in that cultural context was what one person thought about it. And that person was Xerxes, the king. Uh, Persia was different from the U.S. in that Persia was uh, a monarchy and... Uh, A monarchy is a system of government in which all the people have one supreme leader who has all authority over all those people. And in this particular empire, King Xerxes was the supreme leader. He was the sovereign ruler. His will was the law. That's just how it worked. Everyone in 127 countries under His kingdom was subject to his will. He got whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted it, and that was his right as a king in a monarchy. If he wanted advice, he would ask for advice. And if he wanted to take the advice, he would take it. If he didn't want to take the advice, he wouldn't take it. In fact, kings in monarchies were famous for killing a person who gave them bad advice. And that was their right. Because they were the supreme leader in this context. Needless to say, in that context, Vashti technically had no right to say no to the sovereign king. And she knew it. By the way, for however long they were married, this was the arrangement. 
The only time you could go into the presence of the king was when he summoned you, when he requested you, when he ordered you to show up. And when he ordered you to show up, you better come into his presence. The only exception was his seven most trusted advisors. Other than that, the only time anyone, including Vashti, came to see Xerxes was when Xerxes requested her presence. This was the arrangement and she knew that from the beginning. It's the only way they ever interacted. Which makes her decision very curious, which makes me very curious to meet her and ask a few questions about what led her to make the decision that she made. When I read this story, I'm immediately triggered by the question transposing my cultural priorities onto that context. And my question is, should a woman be expected to show up at her man's whim? Mm-mm. But that's not the question here. The question here is not about a man and his woman. It's not about a woman and her man. It's a question about a king and his subject. And in a monarchy, it didn't matter, man, woman, or child, you're expected to show up when the king summons you. Which if you're like me, that makes you say, then monarchies are stupid then. Right? The way to go is an egalitarian democracy. Right? A system in which, theoretically speaking, the government works for the people. And the eligible, each eligible person in that context carries equal voice. To which the Persians would say, ha, 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 primitive. They would think that was crazy. Because... It's very different from what we experience here in this country. By the way, one of the sermon questions to feed your curiosity and maybe for you to ask a few questions about is, which is the better system of government? Let's kick that around for fun. A monarchy or a Democracy. Uh, my instinctive reaction is, duh, the better system is the one that I'm used to. Is the one that I'm familiar with. But man, the more I let myself ask more questions, <laughs> I had to say, uh, I don't know. Which probably upset some of you. You need to be more curious, ask more questions. Um, I'm like, I don't know. I'm still thinking about it, but at present, my conclusion is it depends who the leader is. (laughs) That's my conclusion. Would I rather have spent the last 10 years in our democracy or would I rather have spent the last 10 years in David? The king's monarchy. It depends who's leading. I said to myself. I don't know. And then God, he doesn't help very much. Because he says, I ultimately put in positions of authority whoever is in whatever system of government. I'm like, that doesn't help. And then I wrestle through it a little bit more and I'm like, yeah, but then... Spiritually, like, ultimately, I'm the citizen of a monarchy. Like, Jesus is my sovereign king and I'm subject to his ultimate will and I'm going to spend forever and ever and ever in a monarchy. I don't know. I need to ask more questions. Have fun with that. Anyway, in Persia... 
It was Xerxes. He was the supreme leader. And man, when his wife, who also happened to be his subject, defied him, he was furious. And, you know, got some advice and he ended up stripping Vashti of her crown, banishing her from his presence, and instituting a kingdom-wide law that said, women are to be subject to the men in their lives. And then things only get messier from there. Esther chapter 2. If you have a copy of the Bible, meet me there. We're going to have the uh, verses up here on the screen. Let me just say this to you ahead of time. Man, some of the things that are going to surface in this chapter are, are going to be a little bit on the heavier side. Maybe even uh, delicate. But let me tell you this. I don't think I'm going to mince my words, but I'll be cautious in in case you're somebody who has sensitive ears. I'll be careful, um, but I can promise that it won't trigger some curiosity and some questions at lunch. Um, Esther chapter 2 verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered... Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. By the way, this is going to be such a great lesson in impulse and regret. When you make an irreversible decision, you want to be sure that you can live with it. I'm talking to some of you who are considering saying, I do. You've got to be sure that you can live with it. Before you sign those closing papers, you've got to be sure. Before you say to them, I hate you and I never want to see you again. You've got to be sure. Before you get her name tattooed on your face, you've got to be sure. I'm just telling you. Right now, chapter 2 opens up with Xerxes having a what on earth have I done kind of a moment. Something reminds him of his ex-wife, Vashti. um, And the sense you get is that it makes him sadly reminiscent of the days and the times that they spent together. He straight misses his boo-boo now, like his day one. But he also remembered that he tattooed. Some royal documents that would make it really messy to try and laser remove and undo what he had done. He was kind of in a stuck place on account of his decision. And I think I have some sense of what reminded him of Vashti and made him miss her. Xerxes is nursing some serious shame and disappointment. Um, What the author of the book of Esther doesn't tell us is four years have passed since the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. What happened during those four years? Great question. Xerxes went to war against the Greek empire and they kicked his royal butt in humiliating fashion. Ooh, it was bad. So Xerxes is now back home. His wealth has taken a hit. And there's a little less respect on his name. And for man in that culture, as is true for men in many cultures, the loss of money and the loss of respect sends him into a hurting place. And I think it's in his misery that he remembers his day one Vashti. Oh, Vashti. She would know exactly what to say right now. And she would know how to cheer me up right now. But I made a dumb decree and she is gone. And the picture is of Xerxes just moping around in his misery and in his disappointment. And by moping around, I mean history records him as going on one of his famous adult pleasure binges. As the king of Persia, this dude had access 
to young women that were brought to him at the snap of his fingers. And in order to deal with his inner hurt, he was snapping, boy, and snapping and snapping. Woman after woman after woman after woman. He even demanded some of the wives of his army officers. But yet no matter who it was, none of them seemed to quite match up or measure up to Queen Vashti, and he continues to live with this disappointment. Oof. Can you imagine this, this monster of a man who's just snap of his fingers to deal with his inner pain or his inner insecurity? He's just snapping his fingers, girl after girl at his fingertips for his Pleasure, what a monster, girlaftergirl.com. Just saying, have we come that far? Anyway, verse number two. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, this is crazy. Well, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. And let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. And let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the king's women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the King, be queen instead of Vashti. They proposed this to Xerxes and this advice appealed to the king and he followed it. Man, the Bible doesn't even try to airbrush this story. The Bible doesn't even try to temper or pretty the story up for our consumption. It just shares it. It is raw and it is messy and it is heavy. And with the help of the Holy Spirit and a little curiosity, we get to process this. This is heavy, y'all. This is where we first learn that the king had access to young women at the snap of his fingers because he collected them. He had a beautiful house on his royal compound. And that house kept women for his pleasure. Two groups of women. One group was a group of virgins who were groomed and they were trained and they were made over for an appointment with the king. And then he had another section of that house that was for the concubines. And the concubines used to be virgins, but are no longer virgins thanks to the king. But they lived there just in case. At some point, the king should remember them and request them by name. Then they could come back and see him. And the reality is for most of these women, they would only encounter the king one time. But they lived in seclusion, removed from the world, just in case. And that was their life. We don't know how many women Xerxes had. We know uh, from history that his son Artaxerxes had about 360. Just for him. Well, apparently, however many women the king had, his little team of suck-ups decided it wasn't enough.
He's running out of virgins. So, based on their advice, he issues a royal order. Remember, this is a monarchy. To literally start rounding up girls from around the kingdom. And if the commissioner knocks on your door, you give your girl up. It's not an option. They're not asking your opinion. And when you give her up, it is likely that you are never going to see her again. Because she is going to be secluded on the king's compound. Once these girls who had been gathered slash abducted from likely 127 different countries, when they arrived, they were entrusted to a eunuch named um, Hegai, the guy in charge of the king's women, the guy who knew best what the king liked most. And for the next 12 months... These girls would have every amenity they could possibly dream of while they were being prepared for that one fateful night with the king, waiting for their name to be called, being trained and being taught how to hide their fear and how to hide their reluctance, how to play pretend for his Benefit. And this seems like a good time to ask the question for you to think about how do you feel about that? How do you even process something like this? Girls being forcibly Ripped from their homes so that the king can have more options. Young ladies who are cut off from society and they're kept in seclusion. Let's be honest. They are kept in captivity. In the off chance that at some point in the next 10 years he might remember you. Man, I read through this and I have feelings not just as a man but as a father of girls. But you need to know it's not just the girls. There is a character here named Hegai who is a eunuch. Do you know how he got the job? Every year, 500 boys are abducted from their homes and they're castrated and they're forced into the king's service. And this guy grew up in the system and eventually got to this position. I'm just asking, how do you feel about this? Kids being abducted. For the pleasure of this one guy. Let me say, if this breaks your heart, if this makes you angry, I say good. In fact, I say it absolutely should. Yeah, man, if I could jump in at the time machine and go back to that day and time, I would go back and I would, you would what? Because I'm also curious. Where is that same passion for the 500 plus girls a year? Who are sex trafficked in our state. The state of Indiana. Because it would be weird. 
If we flared up and raged about this practice that's conducted in a culture in which it was perfectly acceptable thousands of years ago. And we didn't bring that same energy and rage and passion in a culture in which it's completely unacceptable. And the government actually considers it illegal and we have resources to do something about it. That would be so strange if we sat in a room like this and got upset about Persia but not about Indiana. I'm just saying. Kids in our state who are forced out of safe places for the pleasure of the highest bidder. I'm not talking about going through a portal into a different culture or a different time. I'm talking about right here in our own state. By the way. If there's any question about it, let me say, no matter what culture, no matter what time, no matter what political and governing system, what Xerxes did is wrong. And it should infuriate us. Not just because it's different from our preferences. But because the king of all kings hates it. Wherever, whenever anyone uses a position of power to force someone else to act for their personal benefit. Jesus condemns it and he calls it injustice and he calls it abuse. Make no mistake about that. And when Jesus speaks y'all, it doesn't matter what the culture thinks. It doesn't matter what the time is. It doesn't matter what might have become Acceptable. If you strip someone of personal choice for your personal gain, it's injustice. It's abuse. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. Jesus called his followers together and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over their people. They use their power to enforce their agenda. For their benefit. They lord it over. They demand their way with their people. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Using power. Using rank to get what they want. Verse 26. Not so with you. That's not our way. Instead whoever wants to become great among you. Must be. Your servant. Matter of fact. I don't think it's enough. For Jesus people to join him. In condemning this kind of injustice. Jesus goes further. In his word. He calls us to crush it. Wherever we find it. What's scary to me is I think we can sit in a church and hear stories like this and be completely unmoved. That is the scariest thing to me. And be like, it is what it is. It is what it is because it's not your sister. It is what it is because it's not your son. It is what it is because it didn't happen to your parents. Otherwise, you might not be here to feel nothing about this. But what's of second concern to me is that we would feel something and do nothing. I think that's the majority of us as a church. Like we have these really strong feelings about what we should and what we shouldn't do. And then we leave and we eat lunch and we completely forget. Um. Isaiah chapter 58 verse 6. 
This is God speaking to his people. Is this not the kind of worship that I have chosen for y'all? Loose the chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the yoke. Set the oppressed free. And crush every yoke of oppression. I'm not just asking you to feel something. I'm asking you to to do something. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't know if you knew this, but you are part of his justice league. I'm sorry, Marvel people, right? Which means whenever you become aware of anyone in any situation in which their choice has been stripped away. And someone is using power to get them to do something for their benefit. God calls that injustice and he calls us to play a part in bringing release. In bringing freedom. Being agents of freedom. To crush injustice where we find it. You see someone caught in a situation against their will, don't turn away. He says in chapter 58 of Isaiah, don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. We ought to ask the question, what is my role in your justice, God? Say something. Report someone. Make a phone call. And I'm telling you right now, if you're aware of abuse that's happening in your home or you're aware of abuse that's happening in in someone else's home because you have friends at school and you see the bruises, let us know. What you cannot do is be silent. You are part of God's justice league to help to crush oppression and injustice wherever you see it. Even little things, you hear like a, a spouse who's um, you know, enforcing submission and using the Bible. If you ever hear a man telling his wife, you must submit to me. That's injustice, buddy. Read the passage. God says, wives, submit yourselves to your husband as to the Lord. It is no one's business except God To convince her that she ought to make that choice. The minute you start to talk like she's stripped of choice and she's obligated to you. Oh, no, no, no. And the minute a wife starts to say in that context to her husband. I'm enforcing love week. You must love me. Um, No. Now you're starting to lord over and you're starting to impose An attempt to use power somehow or manipulation to get something. Nope. But I'm talking to you students in in school and college or in high school. And you're aware of a dating situation or relationship in which you know she feels stuck. And she's too scared to break up with him. Or he's too scared to say no. Oh, you've got to figure out a way to be a chain crusher. Don't be quiet about it. Just because you go home comfortably, and for goodness sakes, church, let's get educated about the signs of human trafficking that's happening under our very noses. There are ways to start to learn the signs. It's the reason I'd encourage you, hey, get to know our mission partners and support um, our mission partners, uh, Donna Plummer. Um, Beloved, not forgotten, she's spending her life dealing with people who are coming out of sex trafficking. She told me this morning, like, man, I have stories that, man, will shock you and will also give you hope. Point being, the church should be raging and rising up to act when scenarios like this Emerge. This is not just a story we see about what's happening at a different time. It's what's happening in our very world. But believe it or not, um, those circumstances are what set the stage for us to meet Esther, the hero of the story. Verse number five. Now, uh, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jairus, son of Shimei, the son of Kish. Who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon... 
among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. So, um, the author wants us to know in this really poetic way that just as these girls um, are being dragged from their homes, the entire Jewish nation had been forced out of their land um, maybe about a hundred or so years before this by the king of Babylon named um, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, as a result, millions of Jews were scattered all over the world. And in most cases, they ended up in slave situations or they were treated as a um, man, a subordinate people group. In either case, there was one such Jew who happened to land in the city of Susa. Verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken care of her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed because it wasn't an option, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai who had charge of the harem. And the harem was the house where these women lived. She, Esther, pleased Haggai and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace. And he moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Um, This is where we meet Esther. Described as being striking in her appearance. A beautiful face and a lovely figure in that cultural um, context. Which at that time some dangerous traits to be walking around with. At some point Esther gets nominated for abduction. And she's dragged off to the king's harem. Immediately the head eunuch in charge, Haggai, sees her. He is stunned. This dude has seen a lot of beautiful people in his life. But no one as striking as Esther. Oh, she got special treatment right away. Seven personal assistants. Special spot in the quarters. As she begins her 12-month preparation process leading up to her date with the king. It's almost as though the author is trying to distract us from what's happening here by telling us, oh, the amenities were so special and all of this was happening and these beauty treatments, but we'll jump ahead in the story a little bit and we'll come back next time. Verse 12, before a young woman's turn, you already knew this, came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh and uh, six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, spend the night, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, what a name, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So now the question starts to build, right, as we wrap for this week. And the question is, what will Esther choose to do? What would you have advised Esther to do under these circumstances? Say no? Risk her life? And she would be risking life. Keep in mind, she's not the queen. Queen Vashti got a slightly different treatment on account of the fact that she was the queen. Would you encourage her to go along with it and survive? And how will you feel about the hero of this book if she goes along and plays along with this injustice? Well, let's find out. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, To go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. She went with his recommendation. 
And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all the nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So again, here's what's happening. Esther is so striking, so beautiful that Haggai, the eunuch, sends her to Xerxes two months early. And as she makes her way to go and see the king, everyone who sees Esther has the same response. Whoa! Never seen anyone like her. When Xerxes lays eyes on her, it is love at first sight. The dude is completely smitten. He too has seen a lot of beautiful women, but none like Esther in his life. Apparently, she was more impressive to him than any of the other virgins, so he shuts down the whole search, proposes to her, puts a ring on her finger, and a crown on her head. And after nearly five years, Xerxes is in a relationship. And he does what he does. He throws a party for all of his leaders to flaunt his best self, who at this point happens to be Esther. This church is how Esther becomes the queen. How do you process that? How are you going to think about that? The, the hero of this Bible story went along with this gross game, essentially willing to sleep her way to the top. Are you going to come back to church to hear more about her? Do you still view her as a victim now? Or do you start to view her as a bit of a villain in the story? How do you feel about this? How do you feel about Esther? And let let me say something before I send you all out. We'll talk more about this and and Esther and, and the process and her choices. And yet in all of this messiness, you know what the author wants us to start locking in on? It's this. Look, curious. God is still working his best purpose in all of this. That's what the author wants us to lock in. God is still working his best purpose in all of this. In all of the mess and in all of the things that shocked you. And in all of the things that made you angry. God is still working his best purpose in all of this. Can you even see it? A bunch of powerful men have made this this irreversible decree that makes women less influential than men. And Esther is now the queen. God is still working in all of this. King Xerxes made a gross decree, stripping women of their choice for his pleasure. It's terrible. And yet God is still working in all of This, did you know the name of God and God himself does not show up one time in the whole book of Esther. It's almost as if the author is saying, you're going to have to be more curious. You're going to have to lean in and see God at work in all of this. God is still at work in all of this. And I came to announce that to you before you leave. Some of you need to hear that. God is still working his best purposes in all of this. Not because of a feeling we have, but because of what Jesus said he came to do. Isaiah 61 verse 1. Jesus said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and the hurting. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives, those who are forcefully put in certain places, and to proclaim release from darkness for the prisoner, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, 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 and the day of God's vengeance. 
to comfort all who mourn. And I just came to declare to you, if there's an area in your life in which you felt like there is pain and injustice that's happened to you that you couldn't stop, I want you to know God is still at work in all of that. His purposes are still being worked out even when his name seems invisible, even when you don't seem like you can see his hand in the midst of it all. I came to declare what the devil tried to steal, God is restoring, God is redeeming, he is still at work in all of this. His purposes are still working out. He is not absent from all of this. He's setting up better places. In fact, I came to declare to some of you who've experienced divorce and abandonment, I'm coming to reclaim God's healing over your life and that he would now use you as a vessel of healing. For some of you who've experienced abuse that the rest of us cannot even begin to imagine, I want to speak God's healing and restoration over you and his justice over those who carried it out. Jesus came to undo what the enemy did. He is still at work in your story, even when it feels messy and wrong and gross. He's still at work in our nation, even when it feels like everything is going crazy, even in our state where the most crazy things are happening. God is still working out his best purposes in the midst of it all. And some of you need to walk out of here with the hope of knowing, oh, he's not done. Your story does not end in a harem. Xerxes doesn't get the final say. And my prayer for you is that as you walk out of this room, that every space you walk into, you will be under the favor of God. I love that about Esther. Wherever she walked, there was favor. And all I know is Jesus came to proclaim the year and the era of God's favor. And I'm praying that over you, that you would. Declare that over yourself. He is still at work and his purposes are still working in the midst of all of that. We're going to continue to see that throughout this book. So Jesus, I pray even now that you would release your people to the greener pastures that are on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. That you would speak freedom, that you would speak joy, that you would speak healing even now, that you would break chains even now. And I pray for your church that you would stir in us your passion for justice. Not just to feel what you feel, but to do what you've called us to do in the power of your name. Jesus Have your way. Continue to work your purposes in all of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.